No, when I was little. Yeah. We used to ride our bikes with no hands. Yeah. And my father would yell out the window, hot shots get hurt. Hot shots get hurt. <laughs> That's pretty good. Hello. Oh, hi. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. What's going Welcome on? Welcome to the Lab Report. Welcome. My name is Michael Chapman. And I'm Patty Devers. You can reach our show. Yeah. You can you can reach us. You can if you email us. Podcast. At gdx.net. That's how you do it. That's right. Uh, if you like this show, please do a couple things. Mm. Oh, now there's a list. You're getting bossy, Look, Chapman. Uh, we've got errands. Go ahead. We've got errands for you. <laughs> First, Homework. do rate us, leave a review, subscribe. Mm, important. Do that. And keep listening. What are we doing today, Michael Chapman? Well, I thought it might be a good idea to talk about short-chain fatty acids. And the reason why I thought it might be a good idea to talk about that is we've talked a lot about the bacteria in the gut. We did. We did a whole episode on the commensal bacteria. I, and we've talked about them in several other episodes as mm -hmm. well about these, you know, there's a lot of bugs down there, right? What's we've, going we've on? said that. And, but at the end of the day, who cares? Everyone. Well, it seems, cares? I mean, it seems that <laughs> way if you pay attention to the literature, but it, the reason why we care about their, their presence there is that they're doing stuff. Right. Like, and they're Chris, making things. Christine explained this when she came. Yeah. Right. And that they're making things, a lot of those things are short-chain fatty acids. And so I just thought it would be a good topic to, to talk about. And not only that, but short-chain fatty acids are something we can evaluate for to tell us a little bit about whether you're getting enough of these beneficial products. Some call them postbiotics. Mm. Christine may have called them postbiotics. I can't remember back that far. I know. But I'm assuming she used that word because she we're kind of, we're starting to use that word. It's, yeah. If you go into literature and you start looking for some of these things of the metabolomics of the gut. That's another word. Yeah. They're starting to use these words like postbiotics, right. gut metabolomics. Right. And what they're talking about are the bacterial metabolic byproducts, things that the bacteria in our gut are making. Yeah. Or put simply... Stuff that the bugs make. Yeah, stuff that the bugs are making. Right. So with that, what about short-chain fatty acids are important? Let's start with how many are there? Let me let me start even further back. Oh, you're doing this again. I know. I have to, Michael. I have to pull it back further. Jeez. There are short-chain fatty acids. I'm just acids. trying to go. Go, go, go. <laughs> no, I, you're like, whoa, pump the brakes. I'm always, I'm always pulling it back. We've got an outline here. Back. Stick to the outline. We don't even have an outline. We're just kind of going with it. But it seems like you've got one. I do in my head because when I think about short-chain fatty acids, some can be made from protein fermentation. Yeah. Right. And then some can be made from fiber fermentation. Yeah. So some people call the products of protein breakdown in the digestion absorption section of the GI effects putrefactive short-chain fatty acids because they're really fermentation products of undigested protein. They are short-chain fatty acids. Mm. Yeah. And then there are fiber fermentation products that are short-chain fatty acids. Which are also short-chain fatty acids yes, they and they're not all made equal, right? No. Why would you call those from protein putrefactive and the others beneficial short-chain fatty hmm. acids. I think it's because when you eat protein, it's supposed to be broken down and reabsorbed. It shouldn't make its way all the way through your colon to be putrefied or fermented mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. by the bacteria. And fiber, both soluble and insoluble, can make its way to the colon to be used as energy. That word 
putrefaction. I, know, I hate that word. It sounds as bad as it is, <laughs> it right? Does. Because usually when we think about these protein products, these protein-derived short-chain fatty acids, is that they don't have the greatest clinical associations out there. Yeah. Um, few studies have shown that they have clinical associations with colorectal cancer. Mm. Um, and when you think about the nature of them, they're branched-chain amino acid fermentation products. Um, and, you know, just clinically, a lot of times, if I see these elevated, I actually start to ask about uh, whether the patient has noticed uh, malodorous gas uh, coming from that per- that aspect of putrefaction of protein, mm. which always... It smells bad. Yeah, we're talking about SIBO, right? Small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm -hmm. You often see really high products of protein breakdown. Right. So that's one type of short-chain fatty acid. Yes. But when we're talking about the beneficial type that come from fiber fermentation. The good ones. Yeah. So this always comes up, Michael. What's that? We call these the beneficial short-chain fatty acids, fiber you know, both soluble and insoluble makes its way to the colon to be fermented by bacteria. So that always comes up. Fiber is important. Soluble versus insoluble. Some people more recently out there, media, have been mm. talking about fiber not being as important as once thought. What are your thoughts on that? Wow. We just went right to it. So my thoughts on that is that fiber is very important. Mm. Um, if you go back and you look at, well, I guess there's some disagreement here, but if you go and look at the Paleolithic man, they assume that that individual was consuming huge amounts of fiber. Now you're going to depend on what particular tribes and blah, 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 because right come from different places, different food supplies. Um, but the people that were eating an omnivore type diet, then they were eating huge amounts of fiber. We're not currently eating them. And fiber, if nothing else, is a monstrous substrate for short-chain fatty acid production. And N-butyrate in particular has been shown to have massively positive clinical associations. We know it helps with the integrity of the mucosa, where it's a fuel source for colonocytes. It has systemic anti-inflammatory actions. Um, The list goes on and on when it comes to N-butyrate production. But I think the short-chain fatty acids in general can also help to maintain that intestinal barrier function, right? It helps to keep that barrier. It also helps to regulate the colonic absorption of water and yeah. electrolytes and nutrients, and and it supports the commensal bacteria, right? It's kind That's of a right. symbiotic yeah. relationship there. Right. Um, so when it comes yeah. to fiber, um, the I, I think that, for one... If you're not consuming a diet that's rich in fiber, you're running some major risks for short-chain fatty acid deficiency in the, in the gut. And it's well studied that alterations in short-chain fatty acid production is increased with cancer risk. And there is a lot of studies out there that low fiber intake is also associated with increased cancer risk. I don't know what particular studies get cited by the people saying that fiber is not important because it's not the majority of them. They might pick out one or two, and we know literature is always discrepant. So you tend to side with the mounting evidence versus the few. And the mounting evidence is that increased fiber consumption lowers your risk for cancer. And when we, were ha- when we had that whole episode on the commensal bacteria and that symbiotic relationship, we talk about prebiotics, probiotics, and now postbiotics, right. right? So some consider the prebiotic part this fiber part, which feeds the actual bacteria, which then make important byproducts, which 
contribute to health. So it's that whole symbiosis of the the prebiotic now becoming the postbiotic. Right. And so much of it, you know, is like when we talk about your bacteria deriving a lot of your your food cravings even. Mm. And so how much of it are we eating to encourage a micro a diverse microbiome? Are we doing that? We know that when you're eating uh, a more limited diet or a more select diet, something like a paleo diet or a ketogenic diet, uh, there's a lot of concerns out there that you're decreasing diversity because you are. The more you increase the diversity of the food that you're eating, the more you increase the diversity of your microbiome, and therefore you also increase the amount of beneficial short chain fatty acids that you're producing. Yeah, we talked about that. Well, actually, I think you mentioned this, the microbiome diversity diet. Yeah. Because it comes down to, we asked Christine Stubbe when she was on, you know, what's the best prebiotic? And her answer was really, there's no one best because every bacteria uses different prebiotics to make different postbiotic metabolites, which are all important. So you need that diversity. Right. And I think that if you are, for medical reasons, on like a ketogenic diet or on more of a paleo diet and you're not consuming a lot of diet dietary fibers, then you should certainly consider being on something like an N-butyrate supplement. I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense. We also know that on the GI effects, we measure N-butyrate, we measure acetate, we measure propionate as percentages of the total. Right. And we know that certain bacteria take resistant starch and fiber to produce butyrate. Certain ones make acetate, certain ones make propionate. So Speak to that a little bit more when you say resistant starches. What do you, what do you mean by resistant starch? Like things that aren't fully broken down before they get to the colon. Such as? Like pectin. Okay. For an example, like skins of things. Okay. I also think about carbohydrates uh, like from green bananas or uh, potato starches. Yeah, cold um, potatoes, big one. Cold potatoes, which I didn't eat a lot of until I uh, had kids. And now... <laughs> Because I'm always attending to other people's needs first. Mm. I don't think I've had a warm meal in years. <laughs> I grew up Polish. We ate a lot of potatoes. I ate a lot of cold potatoes. Is it okay if the potato it was like just cooked and then it just sat on your plate mm -hmm. and got cold? Yeah. That counts? I guess. Okay, good. But yeah, resistant starches. Lot of that. <laughs> but the point, the point we're making is that certain bacteria make certain short-chain fatty acids. Right. And so when we're measuring them and there's a complete imbalance, like let's just say everything you're making is acetate and the other two are deficient, that might speak to an imbalance of the commensal bacteria. Right. And we have those percentages on the GI effects. What we have is a total short-chain fatty acid production. Uh, we have an N-butyrate concentration. And then we break down the, the three short-chain fatty acids that we're measuring by percent. And the one thing that I normally say about this is it's another indication of potential dysbiosis because if you have, a, you expect there to be compared to a healthy population, a, a certain amount of N-butyrate percentage, a certain amount percent of acetate, certain amount propionate. And when you start to see skewings of those particular percentages, then it's telling you you've either got a, more bacteria that are making acetate compared to the average individual, or you've got more bacteria that are making propionate compared to the average individual. And that to me is just another subtle indicator of a dysbiosis, an imbalance between the types of bacteria that are making these things. Okay, so to summarize, what are some of the things you're thinking about when someone has a really low 
total of short-chain fatty acids. Right. So short-chain fatty acids are made when bacteria ferment fiber. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking you've got a problem with one or two of those things. You've got a problem with low bacteria that are responsible for making short-chain fatty acids, or you're not feeding those bacteria enough of their substrate, which is the fiber. So it's either you know, some sort of microbiome imbalance or deficiency or a low dietary fiber intake. Where does transit time play into that? So transit time does play a little bit of a role um, because historically we've thought that if somebody has a rapid transit, then they're not providing the bacteria a lot of opportunity to ferment these fibers and things are just moving through very, very rapidly as compared to someone who has a slow transit time. They have, the bacteria have a much more time to ferment a lot of these fibers. Um, and we tend to see that. We tend to see on this, the stool test that people who historically have slow transit time, they have higher short-chain fatty acids compared to the vice versa. Are you ever worried when the short-chain fatty acid total is really high? Um, yeah, you know, it's a little suspicious if it's really high. Mm -hmm. And on the GI effects, we're talking about levels, I tend to think over 100. Um, some people might even raise an eyebrow at levels over 80. Uh, and, and the suspicion there is if you have a ton of bacteria in your GI tract, whether that's in your large intestine or in your small intestine, it's conceivable that you could, you could see high short-chain fatty acids. So some people might start walking the line of questioning around SIBO if uh, they start to see elevated short-chain fatty acids. It's not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing to have them. It's more so it's, it could be a little bit of a surrogate indicator for a potential bacterial overgrowth. Got it. Okay, so we talked about total short-chain fatty acids. Yeah. Uh, we talked about N-butyrate and how awesome N-butyrate is, the individual uh, percentages of short-chain fatty acids mm -hmm. like butyrate, acetate, propionate. So that leaves us with beta-glucuronidase, right? Right. And so we should probably get... Oh, wait. Patty. Yeah. You know who just walked in the room? Oh, my God. Turn around. Don't really turn around. No, turn around. No. It's Oliver. Oliver Jenkins. Oliver Jenkins, <laughs> all the way them. over. This from, is the lab report. This is incredible. Yeah. Oliver, why don't you tell us, this all of a sudden, spontaneous, get to know a Genovian, <laughs> right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your why you're here, what you're doing here? Why, why are you here? Not existentially I, speaking. I mean, yeah, yeah. we mean like Genova business. Oh, you mean Genova business? Yeah, 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 yeah. Not the fact that I walked in here thinking it was the toilet. No, uh, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, why am I, 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 I so, so yeah, I work in Genova, Europe, uh, so over in, over in London, and I'm here just to kind of be annoying and come and say hello to people and, and have a catch up and see what you guys do and, and learn more and take it back to, to the UK and Europe. And, and Hold on. What? Genova, Europe? Yeah. Uh, Do you know about this? You know, most people don't realize Genova is not just an American company. It's an international company. And I didn't Oliver know that. is kind of like the big guru in Europe. Yeah, so the head honcho. He's coming here from the big cheese. England. <laughs> yeah, so, so he's come over here to get an update and to give us an update. So what do you? What do you? What is it that you're mainly responsible for over at Genova Europe? It's a great question. I, th I think I'm your classic jack of all trades. Huh? So my my overriding job is to make sure that the 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 UK business functions properly. So I I, I have my little fingers in lots of grubby pies from. Making sure that we're billing people properly to grubby pies, to test going out properly and coming back and everything. So Got it. we we have to get everything from patients in the UK primarily and some around Europe 
back into our place in London to then stabilize them to get into you guys over here so that you can do the clever testing part. Uh, and then we do our best to educate everyone in the UK on what we do and how we do it and what it means for them and their patients. Were you, before this, were you a part of anything medical or functional medicine, integrative medicine, anything like that? Or is this brand new field? Brand new field for me. Yeah. Brand new field. I, I grew up through my sort of early 20s in medical sales. So I did work selling a pathology service many, many years ago. Um, I won't tell you how many years ago because it will defy my good looks. <laughs> <laughs> but then I went from, so I did pathology, then I moved into uh, pharmaceuticals, which I didn't really didn't enjoy at all. Mm. It's a bit of an odd one for me. Mm. Uh, and then I end up in orthopedics and then a few other jobs until I ended up in functional medicine, mm-hmm. um, which is incredible. It's very fascinating. Do you find it that that was going to be yeah. my next question? Like I was going to ask after kind of getting into this field, has it opened your, your eyes and your mind a little bit as far as what medicine really means? Yeah. Cause when you, when you kind of grow up and you've been through things like pharmaceutical training, it's, and the NHS in the UK is very much dealt around disease states and how to fix it and the quickest way to fix it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're traditionally quite, a, I say traditionally probably the wrong word, but we are quite a, an impatient bunch of people where, you know, you go to the doctors and you walk in and the doctor's got six minutes with you in the, in the UK and right. the NHS. And first question they ask is, what's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. Which is code for, tell me mm. so I can fix it. Right. So we walk into our doctors and go, fix me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's our expectation. Yeah. I, I have never done that, but I'm going to now. But there's no getting to know you. There's no like, is, is there any background to this? It's literally what's wrong with you right now. Right. Mm. And that can be different to what was wrong a month ago or, you know, what could be causative in the future right so actually the whole concept of lifestyle and all the, the medicine that comes with that and understanding the the whole as opposed to the single symptom yeah i think it's fascinating do you and because that's no different than the majority of conventional training here as well i'm wondering how big of a, a swell there is for or a push for the alternative you know approach yeah. to, to healthcare. like is it growing is it is it new and up and coming are they clamoring for something different because clearly what they have isn't working yeah i'd go with that latter part yeah so we we're seeing an uplift in the amount of people who are looking for lab testing to help them make their decision with their patients but i think there's also because of what we said before people are going in to see their doctor and being said and saying fix me but a lot of time that's not happening so our very own nhs website has a page on it called medically unexplained symptoms and it says uh, 50% of, of uh, primary care appointments and 50% of secondary care admissions are all around medically unexplained symptoms. Hmm. Yeah. Now, seeing as you two are the experts in this and I'm just the goon that turned up looking for the toilet, <laughs> can you tell me, I'll have a guess, what are the three major uh, it's called disease states or sets of symptomology, whatever you want to call it, that the NHS cannot deal with that are listed on that page of medically unexplained symptoms? Fatigue? Correct. Mm-hmm. I would just GI discomfort. Yep, so they'd state it as IBS, but yeah, yep. that'll do. Yeah. Mm. One more. This is a fun game. I, like I need like a ticker. Bingo. Oh, nice. I got it. Yeah. So, so they're the three things in the NHS state on their own website that are medically unexplained. But in, in Europe and in England, mm. is there a lot of functional medicine presence? Like is IFM in England? Yes, more so now than, than ever before. So this year in conjunction, well, we've had AFMCP for uh, certainly since I've been around in three and a half years now. We've got another one coming up later this year. So it's like a five-day course that's taking place. 
but also the uh, there's another a clinical education company who have picked up the IFM modules. So recently in October, we did the advanced GI module, um, and there are more coming. There's another four or five this year. So prior to that, did Genova probably did a lot of the training hmm. of these doctors? That's a loaded question, Patty. You know full well we did. <laughs> <laughs> so now we at least know that Genova's not limited by the United States or across the pond or everywhere. And it makes it sound so much more official, too. Just having your voice on the podcast lends a whole lot of gravitas. I mean, you sound, you sound great. <laughs> Let me just say this. You sound you do, great. Oliver. Yeah. I'm currently hating the sound of my own voice. I know. We all do that, but I, I just don't even... It's so unfathomable to me that you could have that voice and have that accent and still be uncomfortable by it because I would just, I'd just be talking all day if I had an accent <laughs> like that. I, I do occasionally, and this doesn't happen very often, people just say, just, just keep talking. <laughs> and then at that point, it's like when someone says, be funny, you go, um... <laughs> right. <laughs> So w- what I do like and what, what pleases me no end is that in the UK we are uh, merely 17 people. So really little. But actually we, we have a lot of sort of uplift in the amount of work we're doing. And it's, I think people, we've got to a situation where people trust us to do the right thing by, by them, the clinician. And by, by proxy that means obviously their patients. So what we do or, and Genova Worldwide do, which filters its way down, is, is you guys make sensible calls about what we do and don't do, what we will and won't say based on sensible, sensible literature, good research, and, and, and delivering it properly to the market. And I think that's why people actually, they trust what we do. People recognise that we do the right thing. Yeah. It was a prime example with the whole Zonian situation. We were the only people to take it to market, or the first people to take it to market and say, this is the way we see this, this is what we know. It may be different to, to what everyone's been saying, but this is our understanding of the situation. Yeah. So in essence, like responsible stewardship. Yeah. Like yeah. We're, we're always going to do the right thing. But how... how in a, and it might be different in the US, but functional medicine is, is growing in the UK, but it's growing slowly. It's still not mainstream medicine. This, it would be delightful if one day we get to a point where there's a nice crossover between conventional medicine and functional medicine, and the two shall meet somewhere in the middle. But at the moment, that's, that's miles apart. So actually, the fact that we have all these people that are saying, you guys are doing the right thing, and you're leading the way by being upfront and honest, we have to adhere to these practices and, and be straightforward because otherwise how are we going to be taken seriously with conventional medicine sure. if we don't adhere to the practices and the research and the quality control you know internal and external that a lab takes place and actually provide the information we do to people how are we going to be taken seriously in a marketplace that is yet to fully embrace functional medicine yeah great point yeah absolutely and it's one of the reasons that brought us here brought me here and one of the reasons why it's it's always great to come you know you don't have any sort of conflict you know, when you're, like when we you're firmly doing the believe research. everything we're doing. Yeah. We believe in everything we put out. Yeah. But that's because you buy into it. But mm-hmm. the other flip side to that is you guys are far smarter than I, and, and you, could pick it, you could pick it apart. So if someone was giving you information and said, you must deliver this information that you knew was false, your integrity would kick in at that point, and yeah. you'd have to say, actually, this is, this is not right. This is not how we work. It's not how you work as individuals. It's not how we do things as a company, and it's the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. And we... Are we perfect in the UK? No, of course we're not. But we do like to feel that if we make mistakes, we are judged on the way we resolve that mistake and our response to it as opposed to the mistake itself because we're all human beings in the, the day and things happen and things go wrong. And sometimes it's out of our control and sometimes maybe we should have done better. But we will do the right thing by that patient first and foremost because it's their samples um, or that practitioner depending on the situation we find ourselves in. And I think that level of integrity is what 
don't know if it sets us apart because I can't comment about what other people do, but it certainly puts us in a, a place where people trust our outcome. And I've had that discussion with people. And I say, this is not a nice conversation for me to have, to hold my hands up and say, yeah, all right, we got that wrong. Or, yeah, all right, you know, so- something's happened which was out of our control, but we will deal with it. And even if it is out of our control, we still pay the price financially with replacing samples or getting a new blood draw because it's the right thing to do for mm-hmm. that patient. Yeah. And we want to be judged on that as much as anything else. And the more I learn about what we do, the more, even in, with my basic knowledge, I get it and I understand it. And why wouldn't we want to be part of it? Because there's so much which is actually just going to be steaming ahead and saying, this is the way things have to happen. It's that, I just said, it's that point where conventional meets functional. Well, who's leading functional? Who's bringing this to the masses? Right. Who's enabling people to get information that they can't get through their conventional sources? And that's us. Mm-hmm. That's because you've got these super smart people that are creating test panels and, and finding ways around what is the, the supposed norm to enable helping people that haven't been helped by other people. Yeah. And what's not to like? Do you know, actually, do you know what's interesting? Is, ah. is when you talk about things like that, is I've had to employ certain people over, over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And it's particularly important when I deal with the, you know, the, the commercial side of things. So the people that are going to be front and centre of our, our company who are customer facing and are going to be the face of Genova for them to actually understand what it is that we do so if you step into an interview with me the first thing I'm going to want to know or want you to know is how important this role is it's not it's not a sales role we don't have sales people in our team we have we have you know you can call me like call account management you can call anything you like but the way I see it is these guys are have to be educators of the people we are dealing with mm-hmm. because actually taking on testing and asking people to put their hand in their pocket for testing that the patient simply doesn't understand. You know, you go, for, you go to see a GP and you have a blood test done. We've all had one of them and we kind of go, oh, yeah, we don't, know what, we don't know what it means, but it's normal because that's what happens. To Being asked to then pay for something is alien for people in the UK, pounds for a prescription. So actually anyone that comes into our office and says, I want to work here, we have to explain to them quite how important each, each individual role is because without that, it falls over. And all the people that are uh, self-funding, all the people that need the help have been through X amount of doctors, X amount of specialists, multiple colonoscopies, nothing wrong with you, off you go, nothing wrong with you. And the patient still knows, they have the symptom, they're the ones that know. So actually to them to make this step, which is actually a different step for people to make, it's them stepping out of their, their comfort zone of the NHS and trying to access more information to get themselves the help they need is important. And actually, and this was taught to me by a, a guy when I, many years ago, I used to work in a microbiology lab. And on my third week there or something, I had to culture the stool samples that came through the door. And I said, no, no thanks. <laughs> and I was taken to, I was taken to the side by, by the lab manager, Tim Forster, lovely man. And he said to me, do you realize that every single sample we get in here belongs to a person? It is a person. It's, a, it's the window to a person, and we are the people that are looking through that glass to help them get what they need. That's, someone, that's someone's mum, that's someone's auntie, that's your sister, that's your child. All of these samples, we, you know, we see pots of poop or vials of urine. Actually, that's the window to health for, some, for, for a relation, a family member. So why wouldn't we do the best we can, even though it is poo mm-hmm. or urine, we should do the best we can do for every single pot of, of that excrement because it's somebody. That's profound. Did it sell you? 
Or you like, yeah, no, no, I was on board straight away. I was like, yeah, I'm having that. Nice. And that, that made perfect sense. And from then, that's the way I, I lived my life whenever I didn't think. You're the best, Oliver. You shut up. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best. Well, that was pleasant having Oliver on. He's always pleasant. Yeah. It's not just his voice either. He's just a good guy. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we're going to get to beta glucurana days. No, it's getting kind of late. And we should probably save that for another episode. Right. And I think it's also too late for question of the day. What? Dude, I don't want people to get bored. <sighs> and this way, maybe they'll hang on for the next episode because oh, we have tons it. more to talk we're about. We the question. I like that. Yeah. Okay. The content of the lab report is for educational purposes only. It is not meant to be misconstrued as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Brilliant. Jolly good. Next time on the lab report, we talk about food antibody testing and your immune system. Food sensitivity, food allergy. Oh yeah, we're going to clarify terms. <laughs> you know I love that. You've been listening to the lab report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. <laughs> <laughs>